podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and on this show, we talk about all things that are related to your actual experience and your life, not just about hearing loss, audiograms, and devices, so many tips and tricks we can share But what I love to bring up for us also is this other part of the journey that's about identity and advocacy and connection and communication, the stuff that actually matters, like how to talk to our kids and how to make them feel like they're super amazing, important, confident, and also that we should feel that way as parents in general and as professionals as well. Today on the show, I am so excited to be joined by Jenna Cowper, part of Hearing Mama, You for sure know her on Instagram or from heartofhearingmama.com. So many amazing posts and conversations. And I just love being in your sphere and seeing what you are creating. So I'm really excited to dive in. Welcome, Jenna, to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So you yourself are hard of hearing and you also have children who are in this same experience. So I'd love to hear how your experience growing up is different than what you're providing for them. I think that contrast would be an interesting thing to go back also looking into the history, how things have changed over time, but also will be hugely valuable to our audience. And as we all know, the majority of hard of hearing children and deaf children are born to hearing parents who don't have any experience or understanding, certainly not personal experience for the most part. So I think you'll be fascinated to hear. Take it away. (laughs) (laughs) That is a loaded question. There's a lot in there. So I'm going to try and break it down. And I'll just talk about some key differences between when I grew up and the age my children are growing up in. We are in different times of life, the world, century. The way stigmas are seen are different. The way hearing loss and deafness is looked at is different. Even if there's a lot that hasn't changed, there's a lot that has. And that includes technology and that includes awareness and education. And one of the differences is just simply who you're surrounded by. My hearing loss is hereditary. It's on my mother's side of my family. And it gets passed down if I hadn't passed it down, it would never be passed down. But if I do pass it down, my kids can potentially pass it down. I grew up in a time where in my family's chain, they were never really part of a deaf community. So there was always someone in the family with a hearing loss. And so their view is you need to blend in. You need to be like everybody else. Wear your hair down, cover your hearing aids because you don't want people to see it. You don't want people to know. So this was ingrained in me as a child. Now, for my children growing up, you are hard of hearing, you are deaf. It's like, this is who you are, and that cannot change. You don't need to hide it. Be proud of who you are. Wear your hair up, decorate your hearing aids, get beautifully colored earmolds or spunky colored earmolds, however you want to refer to them. Celebrate it. And those are just two different narratives being formed in the way we're growing up. Now, I'm not saying what my parents did was wrong. That's what they were taught. And I just happened to grow up in a way where I learned things. This brings up for me the concept of identity first or person first. I actually recently taught this to my students in their oral rehab university level class. And the assignment was go research these two approaches and tell me what you think. What's your opinion of which one is correct? And of course, the answer at the end is it's context dependent. It's case by case. And there isn't necessarily a right one. It really depends on so many factors. But the idea, in short, of identity first is saying that I am hard of hearing or I am deaf. And person first is saying I am a person who is 
hard of hearing, or I'm a person with hearing loss. This whole linguistic, semantic way of getting very nitty gritty with the way people describe themselves, the way professionals talk about you and about your child, it's very loaded and it will change over time. So I think something you're describing is sort of within that debate. I mean, it's interesting to look at it that way. I have to confess, as someone who has grown up being hard of hearing or deaf or with hearing loss or however. (laughs) Right, Um, you start tripping up. You don't know what to say. (laughs) Well, I guess if I'm being honest, I've never thought about the way I identify myself as identity first or person first. I know what you're talking about. I know the concept of it. And maybe I should think about it more, but I guess I've never thought about it that way. I am deaf and I am a person who is hard of hearing. They both for me are applicable. And so I haven't given a lot of thought to the argument for my family personally about whether it's person first or identity first. And I actually think that's one of the major sensitive points, issues that people focus on that. Like what is the wording and start having fights and Facebook threads that go on and on and on of people arguing about what words are we using and how should we approach this? And I really think there's a lot of grace in both directions that it doesn't necessarily matter the exact wording and it might change. It probably will change over time. I think you said two true things. It probably will change over time. And you said just a few minutes ago that it really depends on the individual and their preferences. Yeah. So we were talking about when you're writing reports for your clients, for your patients, what wording you use in the introduction and summary to describe this child really matters. It comes with them. These labels are important because they matter for what services they'll have and how they're seen. But I really want to always bring in the the human side. So I'm very grateful to hear that for you, it doesn't really matter. It's not the point. So tell us a little bit more about when you were growing up. So this was in your family. It was part of the experience that was familiar to the people around you. Well, when I started talking about my family online, my intent was to talk about being heard of hearing and raising heard of hearing kids and the joy that comes with it, the activities we can do together, how we work on speech and language. And that was the intent. And once in a while, I throw in stories about when I grew up and my access at school. And suddenly that topic kind of hit home for a lot of parents, especially hearing parents who kind of wanted to understand what their child might be going through. So I started diving into that a bit more. And what I found in kind of having to think about the way I grew up is I had access in some places, but I didn't have a lot of access. There was not a lot known about education. As a child, you're not thinking about your access. I can look back at it and say, oh, clearly I did not have access. But as a child, you're not thinking that. As a child, you're in school, you want to go home, you want to watch TV, you want to have your snack. But when I talk about access in school, I'm talking about things like I had an FM system, that is access, but technology has changed. Back then, in the 1980s to be specific, FM technology is not what it is today. So for me, it wasn't really access. Basically, it was a piece that attached to my hearing aid. I wore a box. The string between my hearing aid and the box was too short. I walked around lopsided and no kid wants to do that. I even had to sit a bit lopsided. That's how short it was. And then it was staticky. And then I got a neck loop to take away from that. And then you're trying to get the neck loop to work with your telecoil and 
you know, no kid should be working that hard and no kid is going to like hold the telecoil up. And that was the 80s FM system. It was staticky. It had good intention to get the teacher's voice to the student. But then if the student talked, you kind of had to figure out what was going on. FM system today, and not even fully FM system, mini mics for my kid. Growing up today, my kid in kindergarten, she gets that access of her teacher having a mini mic and it can be adjusted that she can still hear the students around her. So she doesn't have to figure out when to turn it off. That's a difference in access. Another difference in access is education. When I was growing up, teachers didn't know about accessibility options for hearing loss. Some people had me sit in front of the class. Some people said I didn't need to because I didn't want to. But if I asked for extra time, on a test because of noise. If I asked for help with things I didn't understand, I was told that giving me extra notes or anything would be an advantage over other students. I know today there's still issues with that, but I know today looking back that I can advocate for that on behalf of my kids because I can recognize that. So that's just a bit of a difference. And I'm not saying my parents didn't recognize that, but today I have a network of teachers of the deaf and people who I met and worked with. So if I need help advocating, I can get that and I know where to tap into and who to talk to. And if my kids can see me advocate, they can learn to advocate for themselves. So one of the differences about advocacy is something as simple as asking the teacher to wear a mini mic and they say, oh, you need to wear your mini mic. That is a very big difference in recognizing that the technology in itself has changed so much and overall awareness and understanding also has changed. So those two things combined. So what would you say are the challenges that your kids have now? The bar has gotten higher and things have improved. What challenges would you say they're facing or that you're advocating for? Now that all this is available, now we got to get people to adapt and use it. For clarification, my kids are oral and they do attend a mainstream school. They do have a bit of ASL, but they mostly choose to speak. So the challenges are still education in that hearing loss is a spectrum. If my child understands you in one room, they may not understand you in another room. My child may understand one peer, their voice, but not another peer, or even teachers. My child may understand one teacher better than another. And there's education about the fact that it's a spectrum. My kids are growing up during a pandemic where we wear masks. I advocate night and day for clear masks, and yet I am aware of the truth that they are not easy to wear all day. They get spit on them. They get foggy. They're not comfortable. They get sweaty. And so I don't ask people to wear clear masks all day. I say, can you wear them during story time and circle time? Can you wear them at moments where you are giving a very clear instruction, not when they're playing, because I know they can lower their mask. But getting people to understand why it's so important for them to wear clear masks is really difficult because my kids are oral and the wording is that they do well. And I put that in quotes, they do well. And the truth is, they do do well. They do very well with the tools they've been raised with. We've worked a lot on language, both spoken and ASL. And the problem is when people see that they do well, they say, well, they don't really need clear math. They hear me fine. They don't really need that access because they're doing so well. And that is an issue because suddenly accommodations are seen as not as important without realizing 
the accommodation allows them to do well, people don't see that they learn to figure things out in the way that I see where all my classmates are going. I see what all my classmates are doing. I am figuring out how to make things work. And especially at preschool age, and even my oldest at kindergarten age, it's not going to show so much. But I worry about when they get to grade two, and when they get to grade three, and other things start to come into play in education. So I am always advocating to make sure they are understanding that they have access. The idea of listening effort and listening fatigue Yes. Getting tired from listening. I love Dr. Michelle Hu at Mama Who Hears, who's been on the show. <laughs> she has the one infographic of the duck paddling furiously under the water, but above the water, everything seems serene and calm. And I wonder if that's your experience too as an adult. So I love Michelle as well. And that mm-hmm. infographic, I know exactly which one you're talking about. I'm mean, 100% <laughs> true. And I think one of the things that's true is the duck paddling underwater. That's also subconscious. As an adult, like I'm so used to all these things I do to figure things out. I'm not even aware that I'm doing them. And then if I think back about them, it's like, yeah, I am absorbing a lot of information. And just to give you an analogy, like you think about how audiologies down vibration come into the outer ear, the middle ear, the inner ear. And it's like instantaneous that you hear. You don't realize that it's all doing all that stuff, but it's doing it. It's going through a lot of process, but you're not thinking about it. And the same thing, all the work that we're doing, we're not like thinking I'm doing all this work and I'm figuring out all these things. But if we think back about it, it's like, yes, we are doing a lot of stuff to essentially accommodate a hearing world by wearing hearing devices, by speaking, by reading lips, by putting sounds and voices together. Your recent reel about learning about the ear, I was excited about that because, (laughs) you know, I like to talk about the ear and how it works and all the parts and marvel at how many things are happening. I seriously (laughs) sit there and my audiology crack with my mouth open. And that's just the beginning because then the processing of putting all that information together at the brain level. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's very important to realize that even if kids are doing quote unquote well, that doesn't mean they don't deserve all the access and ease. We don't want things to be any harder than they need to be. And that's an important thing to bring up. I wonder about teachers who are educated and who want to learn and do well and bring it into the classroom. What are some of the things that they're missing? Again, I feel like this conversation is about raising the bar, going above and beyond. (laughs) Well, that's a tough one to answer because there is me stepping into, when I advocate, I might be asking a teacher to change their curriculum, or I might be asking them to change their goals. One of my child preschool teachers said she wanted to teach the kids a bit about ASL and we can get into the whole argument of who should be teaching ASL, but I'm not going to. I'm going to say if you want to show them ASL, I bought her flashcards of ASL, letter shape, hand card, so she could hold them up. Because hey, if you want to, please go ahead. But I don't want to overstep my bounds as a parent to the fact that you are a teacher. And so we were sitting in circle time the other day. Like I came in with my child. She didn't want to let me go. She's like, okay, just come join our good morning song. And it's like, good morning, good morning. And they're clapping their hand. And it's like, happy to see you. Very simple words. Happy to see you. Good morning. And I'm like, these are really simple signs. And in a perfect world, 
we could collaborate with a deaf educator or a teacher of the deaf to maybe talk about how can we include simple signs in these good morning songs instead of just clapping our hands. That's language for everyone. And that becomes a very fine point of advocacy and trying to take over a curriculum. <laughs> and that is something I'd have to discuss more with a school. And that just happened very recently, like yesterday recently. So I haven't figured <laughs> out, <laughs> out how to approach that. But they are things I and yeah it would be great in a perfect world if there could be a teacher of the deaf or a deaf educator on every campus to just say hey here's small things you can do to just add some extra language to your curriculums yeah. I have to shout out Chloe Tompkins who is a music teacher and is hard of hearing and does sort of ASL combined music classes in libraries and birthday parties that she's got a YouTube channel. We love her YouTube videos that she has all the simple sing-along songs for kids like toddlers and kindergarten age and we really love watching them with my kids too. She's doing that so when I saw that model I know exactly what you're referring to and maybe that's a suggestion if I may to share those videos with the teacher and say like maybe something like this or maybe incorporating this kind of gentle introduction that isn't like I'm telling you what to do but let's collaborate. <laughs> I probably would take that and send that to the school and just say hey. Yeah I want to hear more about the classes you're taking and the program being a mentor. Oh my goodness tell us about that. My background is that I'm a graphic designer. <laughs> That's what I do. I run a small creative services business. And during the pandemic, when my kids were home, they are ages three and six now, but at the time they were one and four, they were really young. So because a lot of my business subsided with the pandemic, I worked in a lot of event spaces and all the events were shut down. I didn't shut down my business, but I was able to stay home with my kids. And that's when I decided to start Heart of Hearing Mama. The one thing that's been clear to me is I am talking about all these things they're my personal experiences. They're my life experiences. And it's been fulfilling to talk about it. But more than that, to have people reach out to me and say things. I had one person say, you explained something that I never understood about my mother and why she reacts a certain way with interruption. Thank you for helping me understand that I now get along better with my mother. I've had kind of funny things. I wrote once about why I eat quickly because I don't hear what's going on around me. So I may as well just be eating. And it was a reference to when I was young and I had a parent reach out and say, I didn't understand why my seven-year-old eats so quickly. And even though I've been asking them to slow down, I never thought about the fact that they might not be understanding what's going on around them. Thank you for that. Then I have other deaf individuals reach out to me and say, I am on my journey, but thank you for clarifying so much and why I do something that I didn't even think about. And I realized I want to talk to people more. And there's a lot of things people don't know about hearing loss. They don't know about growing up, about their kids growing up, what they might be thinking. There's a lot of people are learning to understand about themselves. There's stigmas out there. There's a lot of stigmas out there that the spectrum of hearing loss is not a good thing or it will lessen your life quality or something. And I'm like, I really want to challenge that. It's not to say that there are difficulties navigating a hearing world and how to ask for accessibility while you're also providing accessibility sometimes in the form of speaking and the form of hearing devices. But I want to work with people more directly so that they can improve their relationship, they can improve their way of thinking. And someone even said to me today, I wish I could have your outlook on hearing loss. And I said, my outlook is 40 years in the making. It's been a journey to someone who more recently had a diagnosis. 
I'm like, it's okay for you to not be happy <laughs> with this. It's okay for you to go through these emotions. It's okay for you to feel these things. While I am proud of who I am, there are days where I'm out with a bunch of people in a noisy place, and I'm not happy with it either, just because of this circumstance that I have placed myself in. So it's okay to feel your feelings and all that. And I wanted to work with people. So back to your original question about the program I'm taking. It's at Gallaudet University and is to be a peer mentor for the deaf and hard of hearing. The program itself is geared adults being peer mentors to adults, but I do also want to work with parents of deaf and hard of hearing children to help in that journey. And basically to have a credential to talk to people about hearing levels, hearing loss, deafness, and I'd like to somehow change what I'm doing to focus more in that direction. So that's why I started that program. Um, in it, we talk about the history of hearing loss. We talk about audiology. We are going to have a class down the road about personality traits, which I can't wait. And so it's been interesting so far. I'm in my second semester, so there's not a whole lot that I can give beyond information of two semesters. But right now, we are on basic audiology. It is incredibly valuable. I don't even know the first time I heard the expression deaf mentor well after graduate school, like mm-hmm. not even within the program of being an audiologist. It may have been mentioned, you know, sort of in passing. But the idea that the experts on this topic are the people who have lived experience. And yes, audiologists go through incredible amount of training. And we know a lot about devices and diagnosis and testing and of course, also balance and tinnitus. And I'm a very proud audiologist, (laughs) but I also think that there is not enough understanding of the limitations of the expertise in audiology and that it doesn't carry over into what is it like to be in that restaurant and be in those situations that are difficult and having a peer mentor or an adult for your child, right? Any kind of setup like that is so missing to me. Like once I had this big mindset shift through the podcast and talking to so many amazing people and understanding that the experts here are not the professionals only, everyone has their slice and their expertise, but parents, you're the experts in your children and talking to people who have grown up and experienced what, what your child is going through is so insightful and so valuable. So if anybody out there is sort of feeling lost in the flow of information coming only from doctors and audiologists and speech therapists and educators who each have a lot of wonderful things to say, don't forget to add to that team and reach out and seek because no one's going to hand it to you. This is the kind of thing that in advocacy, you need to seek out a deaf mentor, like really try and see what services are there to connect with someone who knows what this is like beyond a professional sort of medical, educational, but also the real life experience. I agree with all that, but I do have to add a slightly funny story in that I have talked to a few people and especially understanding more of the intricacies of audiology. I randomly have met a number of people lately who are like, I know I have hearing loss, And so I didn't want to pay for hearing aid. So I just bought this hearing aid online and I did an online hearing test. And I'm like, no, (laughs) what if you have something blocking your middle ear? What if you have a conductive hearing loss? You you can make your hearing worse. You need to go see an audiologist. And and that's why they teach audiology in peer mentoring. So we can say, these are all the things that could possibly be happening. This is why it's important that you see an audiologist, even if you end up buying a hearing aid online, which I still don't think is right, but at least you 
know your hearing chart, your hearing tech, uh, what your audiogram is, and you can make a really much more informed decision <laughs> than just yes. randomly saying, I know I'm not hearing well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Definitely. <laughs> Very good advice. Uh, I, I'm really a big advocate for people knowing what the scope is, the scope of practice, what's within my expertise and what's outside of. And when it's outside of, then have a referral. But yes, definitely. Of course, see an audiologist. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) A licensed one. And if you have children, hopefully pediatric one, to really try and get exactly what you need and absolutely get the highest level of care that you have resources and availability to. Absolutely. Good point. Good point. (laughs) And the other thing I wanted to bring up for our listeners is the amazing resources you have on the website of so many activities, games, toys, and how to use them from a parent's perspective seems completely helpful instead of like, what do I buy? How do I use these things? So talk a little bit about all those posts and how that came to be, what advice you have for people. I have to credit a lot of those posts to the teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing that my kids had. I will say, and I will admit that when they were born, I didn't think we needed early intervention. I'm like, well, I'm hard of hearing. I mean, I know everything there is to know about it. What could I possibly need to know? It turns out all the things you don't think about when you're a child. (laughs) And that includes access to language because I only knew what I knew, right? Um, So a lot of the activities I post are in language. I refer to them as spoken, but they're all spoken ASL or any signed language you can use to do any of those activities. A lot of them are based on work with a teacher of the deaf. In anything you're doing, there's language. Um, Putting on your clothes, there's language. We're putting our pink socks on and not making it an activity. It's fun. But in anything you're doing that's fun, there's always language. So is there a way to insert something that you want to work on or vocabulary you want to work on? I've had fun with my kids and that's why I started the whole thing. It's like, it's fun. It doesn't have to be an exercise where say the word, insert word here, you know, it can just be in games. It can be in arts and crafts. It can be in music. It can be in getting dressed and brushing your teeth and eating dinner. The uh, letter cookie cutters for Play-Doh or for cookies. But I saw you also had like the silicone mold or ice cube tray also for letters. So then that's like a whole other sensory and it's for sure a game but you're also doing literacy. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is when we're working on these activities, we're not also thinking only about language. We're thinking about fine motor skills, gross motor skills, just everyday stuff that they're doing. And one of the things our teacher of the deaf encouraged me at was let them make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich by themselves. Do not try to help them. Or even when you're baking a cake, do not try to help them. That's how they learn. This is what one cup is. This is what half a cup is. Let them make the mistake. You have to be okay with the mess. And if you're not okay with the mess, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But I did a post. It wasn't visually crafted very well. Therefore, I don't think it read very well. But it's like how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in 20 steps. Leaving it up to your child. All right, we're going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What do we do? What do we need? We need bread. All right, where is the bread? It's in the fridge. Okay, well, let's go get it. What do we need to put on the bread? Peanut butter and jelly. And where is it? And they find it. All right, are we putting the bread on the floor? No, it goes on the counter. And do we need to put it on anything? Do we need to put it? And uh, they say, oh, we need a plate. 
Um, all right, how are we going to get the peanut butter and jelly on the bread? Oh, we need a knife. Obviously, with one of those toddler knives, like safe ones, but you let them do it. You let them take the peanut butter. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of peanut butter. Oh, that's not a lot. That's just a little bit of peanut butter. Is that the way you like it? That's all language. And folk can sign, and they are also using their problem-solving skills and fine motor and learning where things go and how they go. So it's a great activity. Make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in 20 steps. (laughs) That's great. I really loved that page. It was so inviting, so colorful. And you have all the links right there. So I'm going to send people to your page now, (laughs) whatever. Like what games, what activities? I'm like, I know just the page. I bookmarked it. And I think that also we don't want to get ahead of ourselves with like, you need to buy a thousand things. Like you said, it's all the daily things of life. And I think the most important base level thing is shared attention. Mm -hmm. That you are doing something together and communicating about it at the same time. That's the deal. That's exactly (laughs) it. There's always this balance. I mean, you don't have to spend every waking moment working with your kids, but your kids want to be with you. They want to play with you. They want to do something with you. And so those little activities, like I had one about, where'd the hat go? Where is it? Where did we hide it? Where should we put it? You just said it. You don't have to buy fancy toys, although some fancy toys are fun, but you don't have to. Everything you need is around you to make up games and stories and crafts, empty toilet paper rolls. (laughs) That is definitely a thing that is upcycled on the regular in our home. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like one time, I think that one of them was ripped or wet and it was in the garbage can. And one of my daughters was like, what is this doing in the garbage? Who put this in the trash? <laughs> you threw out my toilet paper roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it happens. Oh, I have to also just give a shout out to the idea of upcycling for a second. So many of the things that we buy packaged are exactly perfect for other things, for storage, for toys, for sorting. I'd love to tell you about one of them. I, I do not have a post about this, but this is great. You know those little pouch packages with the twisty tops? Oh, yeah. Those twisty tops, you probably have multiple colors of them. If you save them, you could actually draw colors on a paper and make it like a coding thing so that they have to follow the color pattern with that code that you make. Or you can just make a pattern and then they have to keep extending it with all those colors. There's a lot of stuff that can go into it. What are you doing? Right. We have so much stuff going in and out of our house all the time. (laughs) So turning on a, a new filter to like, huh, we could use this. Anyway, I think we anyway. could talk about ideas forever because <laughs> yes. once you go into the playing and the, the mom life, parents, all caregivers, we're constantly looking for ideas. So it's good to be inspired by each other and share what seems so obvious to you. Someone else would be like, ooh, great idea. I haven't thought of that. I want to hear if you have a point also for our professionals who are listening, some advice for the audiologists, speech therapists, teachers, and specifically about them in relationship with the parents of the children in their care. There's sort of this triangle, right? The parent and their child, everything is for them, for the child and their goals. But the rapport with the parent is also hugely important for the relationship. And sometimes it can be a little tricky as a professional to be with the child and working with them, but also communicating with the parent about what to do at home. It's a really tricky one and it is hard to answer. The reason it's hard to answer is because I am a parent. And as a parent, you're playing the role of a parent and an advocate. I don't want to say the problem, but the blurred line maybe is that as a parent, we love our children while we were advocating for them. And we also advocating for what we want to see from our children and what we hope our children to be. When we talk about our children, it's out of love and 
and the things we want for them. Whereas when we're talking to a professional or a non-professional, maybe an activity coordinator, they are thinking about outcomes that they may need to reach or meet. It's almost easier for a parent to have an advocate speak on their behalf because then they're speaking about the outcome that they want for the child, maybe from the parent's perspective, but that emotion is not going to get away. And as a parent, we tend to use emotion. And that's where things start to get mixed up because a professional might think they're too close to it. Or they maybe don't understand the professional side where they have milestones and goals. And then there's just so many factors and nuances in that it really kind of depends what professional you're working with. And it depends what kind of parent you're talking to. And depends on the outcomes anybody wants. And sometimes you're on the same page and it's great. And sometimes you're not. And there's a battle. But one thing I would say from a parent point of view, because that is my point of view, is that it's okay for professionals to have the milestone. I think sometimes there's a patient that can maybe come in and repeat back to the parent what they're hearing. Um, Say, I acknowledge that these are the things you are saying, that these are the things you want before talking about milestones or goals or even facts. Because when we repeat back to people what we say, and this is more of a technique I use in my client work, with mirroring, they feel heard most of the time. So the one thing I would just offer is to let parents know that they are heard by repeating what they said, even if you're paraphrasing it. And so that they are saying, yes, you heard that right. And then you can kind of go into what some of these milestones are and these goals, because if they feel heard, they'll listen a bit more to what maybe you're trying to achieve and your perspective on the matter. With all that being said, there are different programs, there are different people. There's so much involved. There's so many nuances. But at the end of the day, I think that small detail of acknowledging what a parent says will go a long way, whether you agree or not. Yes, validation. It really is such a huge part of all of our communication. Thank you so much. What a beautiful thing to offer to our listeners and There's also a full transcript of all of our conversations at allaboutaudiology.com. Jenna, I'm so grateful that we had the chance to chat a little more in depth than reading each other's posts on Instagram, (laughs) which is also fun. We'll have all the links in the show notes to heartofhearingmama.com for you to check out all of the resources and that beautiful list of games to play. (laughs) And thank you very much for all of the listeners of the show being part of the All About Audiology community. You are so appreciated. I'm always here for you and happy to hear how anything we talked about lands for you, any questions you have, any offers or suggestions. And if you know anyone who would be perfect to be a guest in our show, you can nominate them, send me a DM on Instagram or through Facebook or through my website. And a huge, huge thank you to the patrons of the show. And if you'd like to become a patron, That's at patreon.com slash allaboutaudiologypodcast. Thank you very much. This is the All About Audiology Podcast, and I am Dr. Lila Sapperstein.